Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. In January 2019, we launched the What Fuels You podcast, and since that time, I have had the honor of featuring and highlighting leaders and their incredible stories. Though I'm eager to continue sharing these stories with you, I want to make space for different and relevant content for this unique and challenging time. While we all navigate the COVID-19 pandemic together, on this podcast and the upcoming ones, I'll be having more focused conversations with leaders to help answer questions, get key insights, and share stories of inspiration around how they and their teams are adapting during this new reality. I hope you enjoy these episodes of the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Matt McElwain. He's a managing director at Madrona Venture Group. Matt invests in a broad range of software and data-driven companies with a focus on cloud computing, intelligent applications, and the intersection of the digital and physical world. Before joining Madrona in 2000, he was vice president of business process for the Genuine Parts Company, and he was also an engagement manager at McKinsey & Company. Matt is the chairman of the board of trustees at Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center and a board member of Washington Policy Center. Matt enjoys going on adventures with his family, discussing public policy issues, and trying out new technologies. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure, Shauna. Excited to be here. Yeah. Awesome. So we're going to start with rapid fire. Um, And I've done a little research, so some of this is relevant for your life, but some of it is just random. So the first one is, what is your favorite board game? Oh, <laughs> well, other than the Dartmouth graduate game. That's, uh, where, that's where that question came from. And also COVID-19, everybody's playing board games. So I'm curious if you're a board game guy. Uh, we do like it. You know, it's been fun playing Trivial Pursuit with our family, uh, even though we're realizing that for our kids, a lot of the questions are pretty dated. Yeah. Uh, but, it, but we also are big card players. And so we've been playing different card games like Hearts and we got this game we call up and down and stuff like that. So oh, nice. Uh, and then I'm taking notes. Of, I'm writing down ideas up and down. Okay. Yeah. And then puzzling is a very popular thing, uh, yeah. uh, you know, in our household too. So the mix of card games, board games and puzzling has all been fun over the last couple months. Nice. So your favorite, you're going with Trivial Pursuit? That's a good uh, let's one. Go, we'll go with Trivial Pursuit. Okay, cool. Do you uh, hate to lose or love to win? I know you're a competitor. Uh, 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 yeah, I, I definitely in the love to win camp, you know, and I think yeah. it's, it's, it's fun to be a, to be a winner, uh, but I think not at the expense, you know, of having fun with people. Yeah. You know? So it's more to have the fun and the experience than it is to, to, to win. In fact, I came in last place last night in this up and down game we were talking about. And, you know, the, the fun moment was the final rankings of our, our kids in relative positions. And it was a good night for my wife. So I was happy for her. <laughs> um, is there a quote uh, that you go to or look to um, for inspiration? Like a, oh. your kind of go-to quote? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question about a go-to quote. I don't think I have a go-to quote. Um, I, if I had to pick something, I'd probably go with, uh, there's a verse in the Bible, Luke 12, 48, which, uh, you know, to paraphrase it is, you know, that, you know, from too much that has been given, much is required. Uh, and so always thinking about that, you know, I you know, grew up in a family where my mom never went to college. My dad was the first in his family to go to college. And so those opportunities they created for me created opportunities throughout life. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like 
I've had the good fortune to be in places where I can make a significant positive difference. Yeah. And, um, and so what is that and where, where am I being guided? I love that. So like a servant leader mentality, like how do I give back? And also just your, your involvement in, well, we'll get into all of it because we're in rapid fire now. I'm like, (laughs) um, I guess, uh, I'm super curious on this one. What is the number one, if you had to pick a quality, What's the most important quality that you look for in a CEO before you invest in that person? I would say it's this, it's this continuous learner mindset. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we've talked, I've talked about this idea of the learning loop. And if you don't start with curiosity or this idea, sure. there's always more to learn. Um, a lot of that needs to be customer driven, of course, but it starts with curiosity. And curiosity, you know, is a real act of humility. Because oh, sure. it's a, it's admitting that you don't know or you don't have the complete picture and you really want to understand what's out there that you don't fully know. Yeah, I love that. Um, so in general in life, and this can relate to you as an investor as well, do you use intuition or data to make decisions? If you had to say, uh, like, which one do you tend towards more? I, I actually think I use intuition more to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of data that you get to look at and analyze situations, but to inform uh, still, them, yeah, and to inform them. But really, it's it's intuition about people, problem spaces, you know, timing of the opportunity to solve that problem better than it's ever been solved before, and that does come down to intuition. Yeah, um, this I thought was relevant because I was adjusting my phone and looking at all my apps, and I realized how many are not relevant right now. Like my favorite mm-hmm. app is typically pay by phone, like to park. I'm like, I'm not going yeah. anywhere. So I guess I'd, I don't need to use that one that much. But what app would you say is your go-to favorite app right now? Uh, Pre-COVID and post-COVID, I guess. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, probably pre-COVID, I would still, you know, uh, check out ESPN quite a bit. I'm a big oh. sports guy. And yeah. uh, that was a fun across a lot of different areas. Yeah. Um, post, you know, I've been able to go out for runs quite a bit. And I love to listen to Spotify, whether I'm listening to an, uh, you know, a podcast or, or yeah. music. So I'd probably say Spotify is one. Spotify's, I- Spotify is a game changer app. It's yes. the best. Do you it ever is. listen to Rock My Run? When I was trying to train for my one and only half marathon, that you can set it to the beats of how, what rhythm you want to run to? actually super that is cool to- that is totally cool and no i yeah. haven't so it's I'm, called I'm rock rock my run i'm not a runner like you i know that you're a big runner yeah. um i listened to your podcast talking a lot about running <laughs> um but i couldn't run very well it was like hurting and still hurts my hips to think about it but the rock my run got me through it was amazing anyway um so on this whole workout thing i also know you're a big pelotoner and so am i, I did my class this morning um who's your favorite peloton instructor Oh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's Toss a great up. question. Depends on yeah. your mood, right? It's like music. Like what might yeah. you want to roll or do I want to like hit a PR today? Yeah, I have uh, I, I have a bunch of them that, that I like, you know, I, I like Dennis. Uh, I think he does a good, oh, good job. You know, uh, I think Allie, you know, I mean, she's popular. Uh, I don't always kind of like her vibe, but I do sometimes. Yeah. I, I took Allie weird. this morning and she's a little more chill. For me, yeah, I like um, Alex or um, well, that Alex Toussaint. That's Toussaint. Another, 
He's hot. Yeah. He's I feel like he's the one who makes me hit records. Like I push harder for some reason with his class. I, I agree. I'd probably say probably if I had to pick one, it'd be Alex. Yeah. He's really good. And I like Robin also, except for I don't like the way she calls us, whatever that word is that she's constantly saying, <laughs> go hunters or whatever we yeah, are. Yeah. Or yeah. I, I'll think of the word, but it drives me crazy. I'm like, oh, don't say that. Anyway. Um, okay. So uh, I want to talk about all sorts of stuff, but let's go back to the beginning. You started talking about your family, your parents, you mentioned um, them, and I didn't realize that that was their background. So it makes it even probably more um, enriching for you to have the success that you've had. But it looks like you lived all over as a child, Miami, yeah. Singapore. Yes, uh, so, my, so my parents met in the military. My mom grew up in Nebraska and, and, and left Nebraska to and join the military and they met at Fort Knox actually. Um, and wow. then my dad moved back, they moved back to where my dad had grown up in upstate New York. He took a job with General Electric and mm -hmm. then it was General Electric that moved us around a good bit. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we moved to Singapore back in the day, GE in the late sixties, early seventies was the largest employer in Singapore, you know, period, mm. bigger than the government even. Yeah. Um, and, and that all changed over time. And do you think that that, I, I'm curious if that um, has shaped you as far as giving you a global view of the world differently than if somebody just kind of grew up in some small town their whole lives, K through 12, same school. Um, I, I do think that's the case. I think it both uh, kind of encouraged a sort of a natural outgoingness that I had anyway, that I was comfortable with meeting a lot of different people from a lot of yeah, different places. Yeah, you had places. to be. You can't just, yeah, yeah you got to show up and, and dive yeah, deep yeah. into that. I mean, what yeah. was interesting is, you know, my friends in Singapore, everything from, you know, sort of local Chinese, ethnically Chinese friends to British and Dutch kids that I was more so in school with. And mm -hmm. then when we moved to Miami, um, you know, a lot of my friends were from, you know, uh, Colombia and Peru and Haiti and That's Jamaica so cool. And, I and love Miami. Really mix. Yeah, it's a, it was a fun place to be as a kid. I can, I can only imagine. Um, so where do you consider home if you're traveling around the world and somebody's like, where are you from? Do you say yeah. Seattle at this point because you've been here so long, or where where do you say is home? Yeah, Seattle. Yeah, Seattle. I mean, we've we've lived in Seattle for twenty years, and mm -hmm. I, you know, so that's well more than double any other place I've ever lived. So yeah. it's really it's really home, and uh, glad it is. It's where uh, our kids have all grown up, and it's it's just been amazing to see. You know, thinking back at the last uh, twenty years, in fact, this is almost to the day that my twentieth anniversary with Madrona. Yeah, I saw um, that. I, That's I, incredible. I started, yeah, and so that was interesting because that was right at the beginning of another crisis. You know, yeah. the dot com bubble bursting. Yeah. And, and uh, how old are things. your How old are your kids? Because my nephew's actually in that uh, the class of of this year graduating, and I'm thinking uh, like, yeah, they're born around like nine eleven, and then I mean they're kind yeah. of like flanked yeah. by these crazy moments of time. Yeah, our our daughter's twenty four, and our boys are twenty one and seventeen. Oh, you've got uh, like legit, and so they're in yeah, the house right yeah. now. You've got like an adult energy in your house. Yeah, no, we've got the we've got the whole gang here. Uh, although our daughter's actually going back to to California, um, where she works, and then our our boys, our our middle guy, just finishes junior year of college, and our wow. youngest is a junior in high school at Seattle Academy and cranking away. Yeah, Seattle Academy's handled this really well. I've been very impressed with them. I agree. Um, I, we've got I some agree. friends with with kids that go there and I they were on it like minute one and the communication and the curriculum just very impressive um so yeah I grew up I went to private and public school and um definitely had some teachers along the way who shaped me and kind of gave me 
confidence. Did you have any of that? Did you have any teachers or people when you were a child that um, that influenced you or kind of made you believe that you could be more than the generation before or kind of go towards something? You know, I went to, um, the only time I went to private school growing up was in Singapore. That was kind of the only option if you didn't speak Chinese fluently. Uh, but then I went to public schools after that. You know, I had a lot of different mentors, uh, you know, from from teachers, Mrs. Naspinski, my 10th grade English teacher, who is not only a, a, you know, kind of a believer in the students, but really helped me get better at writing. I still probably have a long way to go. Um, I had a really great uh, youth group leader at church named Mike Kanj, and he was fantastic and a big, big influence. In fact, many years later, when Carol and I got married, he actually officiated our wedding. Oh, um, that's so amazing. That, so, so he had a big, big impact on my life in the early years as well. I also think that you know, generally having mentors throughout has been a really critical part of what has shaped me. Um, you know, I think about a, a professor in college named Vincent Starzinger, and I took a bunch of classes that were government and public policy related from him. Um, and, and he really helped shape some of my framing and thinking about how, how I see the world from a policy perspective. Um, and then, you know, even in the last 20 years, working closely with folks like Bill Ruckelshaus, who passed away this past year, yeah. Bill Sr., Tom Alberg, of course, and Paul Goodrich, who helped found with Bill Madrona, they've just been incredible mentors to, you know, just plop yourself down in their office and yeah. run something. Well, by I'm them. sure that you're yeah. you've become a mentor in a, in a way for them too because you've been um, an incredible investor for Madrona. I mean, really, truly, like you you have the reputation for being the guy. And um, yeah, I, I want to get into all that, but I'm I'm super curious. We talked a little bit before we jumped onto the podcast about Dartmouth. Um, mm -hmm. When you were like in high school, did you have a, a clear, who was setting the tone for you for like, hey, this is where you got to look and this is how you have to, um, these are kind of the grades you have to get. And, mm -hmm. and then you went on to play soccer at Dartmouth. Like, was that your goal or did that kind of accidentally happen? Well, probably a little bit of both. Um, you know, my, my mom was certainly a great inspiration on, you know, prioritizing education, encouraging us to work hard and, and also facilitating our ability to do a lot of stuff. So you know, I was pretty involved with a bunch of things in, in high school activity wise, also mm -hmm. played soccer and believe it or not, football. That's the more, that's the one that always surprises people. But my first love was soccer. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, was not only always trying to get kind of good grades, but was also always thinking up new business ideas. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I was in things like junior achievement and we had small business yeah. ideas. I did that. Like that. That's so yeah. funny. I went to DC yeah. with that. That was a good program. So what, but what would you say if you had to look back, like what were you fueled by? Because I, I can yeah. say like, yeah. when I look back, I knew that I wanted to have approval. You know, like mm -hmm. I wanted to, mm -hmm. I don't know that it was fear of failure as much. Like I've just talked to different leaders who, um, or that they may have somebody who doubted them, who they needed to prove wrong. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't sound like you really had that. It sounds like you were more, uh, and, and there's other people who are like, I want to get the, you know what, out of wherever I am. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like yeah. that was you either. So do you remember what kind of was fueling your energy to achieve when you were in high school? I just have always had a strong desire to, you know, have an impact on the, the, the people I'm around and the opportunities around it. And then the other thing is, is do it in an innovative way. Like I, mm -hmm. I'm not so good at just, you know, kind of playing by the existing rules, but stepping back mm -hmm. and thinking about, well, why can't we make this better? How can we make this better? What can we do differently? Yeah. And that was yeah. certainly the case even back, if I think back to 
high school or even, you know, college. I mean, that board game that we talked about, the Dartmouth graduate game, you know, rather than go do a summer job between my junior and senior year, I stayed up in Hanover, you know, raised money through selling spots on the board to the local shops and then built this business. And then I hired a bunch of freshmen, you know, to sell them at the tailgates in the fall. And it was, it was fun. It made a little bit of money. It was an incredible learning experience, but it was just one of these things about, you know, Hey, trying to do it a little bit differently, trying to do it in in an innovative way, but ultimately have some impact. Yeah. And how did you end up choosing Dartmouth? Well, it's funny because I, um, I uh, went to this event in the fall of my senior year of high school, and it was literally a slideshow back in when they were actual slideshows and carousels. Mm -hmm. And it was this Dartmouth alum and a bunch of people. And I'm like, wow, these people are really nice. This school looks cool. Back in that day, you know, we didn't, I didn't fly up to Dartmouth or anything. Yeah. Or try to figure it out with your like counselor freshman year. My son's already getting pressure to try to figure this out. I'm like, you're a freshman, relax. Uh, I know. And I was a pretty good soccer player you know, uh, but there wasn't as much recruiting back in that day. And I wasn't, you know, kind of, you know, national level soccer player. So that really didn't play into it that much. But anyway, I applied, uh, candidly was on the wait list and then got off the wait list and um, would have been a Duke grad, a Duke student otherwise, because Duke oh, was school that I was fortunately had yeah. gotten into. Um, yeah, I had Dan started. Levitan on, on the podcast and he's Mr. Duke. So it's yes. interesting, these schools that just really get a grip on people. Um, I, th- I think you couldn't have gone wrong either way. Both of those are actually the two schools that I have heard the most passionate about probably ever. I think that's right. And I think that I, I didn't fully know what I was getting into the first time I ever set foot on Dartmouth campus was for my freshman trip, which is mm. a big deal up at Dartmouth uh, in the fall of two th- 1983. And, you know, I just knew right away that it made the right choice and uh, met some great. great folks. And the rest is, is history, as it were, the Dartmouth uh, the Dartmouth. Uh, you know, gang, as it were, that we've been able to be involved with over the years. Yeah. Have you been back in touch with any of those people during this COVID-19? I'm hearing those stories of people having these like college reunions or high school reunions. Yeah. Have you been I mean, connect I, with anyone? Yeah. There's some that I've connected with, you know, that I, I'm staying pretty good touch with anyways. There's one, one guy that uh, we were fraternity brothers together and I hadn't talked to him in a long time. We just had a great catch up uh, here yeah. recently. Yeah. And it was, uh, that was, that was pretty special. Yeah, I'm sure. And so how do you think being a college athlete, um, I was also a college athlete, um, has shaped you as far as your attitude toward um, hiring? Do you look for mm. athletes? Is that Does that give them a little extra uh, plus in the plus category yeah. if they're a college athlete? You know, I, I think that that's a positive, but I think what you're really looking for is the difference between what can you individually bring to the table and how do you think about working in teams? Yeah. And to me, the college athlete experience has a lot to do of understanding, you know, how, you know, and, and I had a really very fortunate, had this incredible soccer coach who came in my junior year. His name is Bobby Clark. Actually, his son, Jamie, is the head coach at the University of Washington today. Oh, wow. On the okay. soccer team. And Bobby absolutely had this belief that if you wanted to be a part of this program, there was a role for you. It may not be the role you were hoping it would be. Like, you may not be the starting center forward, but yeah. there is a role for you. And I think that built a teamwork mindset and a camaraderie and people could understand and be self-aware of what their skills were. And yeah. so uh, that was pretty special. And that's what I look for. Not just that you are kind of a competitive athlete that shows discipline and, and, and resilience, but that you also understand, you know, your strengths and weaknesses and how that fits into a team. Yeah. 
Interesting. Well, you talked about um, one of your professors, and I know that you studied economics and then government or government mm -hmm. and economics, and then also yeah. policy at Harvard. Did yeah. you think that you wanted to go into politics? You or know, you just, it's always, more of like a passion on the side? It's more of a passion, and it's really more a passion around public policy, mm -hmm. kind of the philosophical constructs. Like one of the things I've been thinking quite a bit about right now is the natural tension there is between freedom and boundaries. And we're in this interesting time where we have, you know, in one level, a lot of individual freedoms, but some of the boundaries are being redefined around what we can and can't do. And what are the implications? Some people are getting quite frustrated with that. And we also understand that those boundaries are not necessarily just for the individual, but of course, for the community. For the greater good, as, yeah. For the greater good. And so, okay, how do we think about that? And how do we think about the different elements of what's in the greater good? Okay, we've yeah. done a decent job flattening the curve on this virus. So without getting into all of that, one of the things I just realized, whether it was, you know, studying, um, you know, uh, even back in high school, I was in this class that we got to study, you know, some of the early philosophers of the Western world, you know, Aristotle, and Plato, and, and we even bumped up into, uh, you know, uh, you know, Locke and Mill and others. And then going deeper with that in college um, and, and really getting steeped into some of the kind of different ways of thinking about things, including importantly, other views like, you know, Marx and Engel and more, you know, sort of more recent thinkers. And then seeing, well, where was that going to play out in my life? And, you know, for instance, I ended up going to work for the public financing group at First Boston and turned down the real estate group at Goldman Sachs to go into investment banking. And a whole bunch of my friends were like, you're crazy. Why are you, you know, going into that sector versus the other sector? And at the end of the day, I, I felt a better fit with the people that were on the team at First Boston. And I had some passion about this intersection of public policy and financing that kind of led me that way. And I feel like if you go with your passions and you go with the people that you connect with most in terms of making those kinds of decisions, it usually serves you really well. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you, um, I do want to go back. You said, I don't want to go too deep into this. And I do to put a like yeah. little like parking <laughs> lot hold on that, because I do want to actually talk about this intersection of freedom and mm. kind of boundaries, because I'm finding it day, even internally in my own house, just my feeling on it, my husband's, the yep. kids, how they're responding, how our friends are responding. Um, yeah, I think it's fascinating moment right now. And it's, mm -hmm. what is it, May 14th. So that for the record on this podcast, it's May 14th, we're in the middle of COVID and um, we're about to enter kind of people going back to work a little bit and seeing how yeah. all of that and socializing, I just think it's actually gonna be fascinating what's gonna come out of this is from a social, just yes. all of it perspective. Yep. Um, but so, so you made that choice um, to turn down Goldman Yes. And right. um, interesting, you know, I worked in New York um, for a recruiting firm. We did all alternative asset recruiting um, mm -hmm. and all of the candidates had these very pedigreed resumes, mm -hmm. um, you know, top schools and then on to Goldman, Harvard MBA. Mm -hmm. You literally have like that resume. You would have been like mm -hmm. the dream candidate. <laughs> to place. We could have made place you lots of places. Um, but that sounds like that it's been one of these things that's been an intersection of um, really just your your mind, your drive, your discipline, not necessarily having that kind of upbringing of New York kids that you hear about starts in preschool yeah. and you better go to Harvard and that's where your grandfather no, went. You know, that. so 
Did you have any, um, well, a couple questions. One, did you have any social conflict around that, like the types of people that you were meeting in that pedigreed kind of world? And two, how does that inform your, um, your hiring approach? Do you, are you focused on pedigree or does, is it like, um, what's the guy at Bear Stearns? He was, he was really, and he died, the older guy. Yeah, no, Ace uh, Greenberg. Ace Greenberg, Ace Greenberg. who yeah. wanted, he didn't, he said, I don't like an MBA, I like a, uh, I can't remember that it was a three three letter, but it was yeah. basically like somebody who's ready to kick ass and and not not afraid. Yeah. And you're well, kind I, of an interesting I, combo of the two. I, I, well, um, I, I guess what I would say about that is I do think experiential learning is the best teacher in the mm -hmm. world. It's certainly been for me, and I know some others are maybe I mean, clearly better than I am about academic learning, but experiential learning I think is what we're really looking for, and then that ongoing curiosity. Not yeah. to think that you know it all because you've experienced some things because there's always something new. And so that I'm really looking for that kind of hunger. I mean, one of the great examples is, you know, Sonny Gupta, who I'd worked with at, you know, Performant. And then we started this company, I Conclude, together and that they had successful outcome. And then they got bought by, you know, Ops, HP. Opsware got bought by HP. And so he kind of could move on. And he did, and he wanted to start a company, and we were talking about it. And I had two things I wanted to look for. One is he still the same humble, listen to the customer guy that I'd known for years. And the answer was yes. And two was, was he still hungry? Now, by the way, Sonny went to University of South Carolina. You know, he moved to the United States to get a college education. And so that kind of raw talent is so much more important than pedigree to use, to use the term. Right. Uh, and I, I found that, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's great to have affinity and affiliation with people from places that you know and you can trust. And I'm so thankful of, for both my college experience, my graduate school experience. Um, but in terms of entrepreneurs, it, I think that those pieces don't matter. It's kind of why are you passionate about solving this problem? Right. And There's not necessarily a direct correlation yeah. to success. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so when when younger folks are asking your opinion about going back to get an MBA at this mm. stage. Mm -hmm. What's your opinion and, and how do you think education is changing um, right now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look, I think for me, when I was in graduate school, um, there were three things that I got a lot out of it. One was just the, the content itself. I learned a set of new skills and, and got exposed to new skills and thinking them through, working them out. Secondly, was this whole element of building relationships. And I think there's a lot of value in that piece. And those a lot of those relationships have been helpful in many ways and often unanticipated ways throughout life. Thirdly, it was a really good time in my life to sort of step back and think about what were the things I tended toward, what were the things I liked and didn't like, where mm -hmm. I might kind of go in the future. And maybe you don't need a third of your time to do that while you're in grad school. But, um, and so I kind of asked people to think about those buckets and, where are they at in their life and their career? Um, yeah. And so, for instance, the the answer also might be different. Of like, if you're committed to being in Seattle and you really didn't, you came from a direction that had less general management experience, you know, it might be a great fit to go to you know the University of Washington, you know, Foster School, which is a fantastic school, anyways. But it might be worth going back to business school versus not because you've got a geographic commitment, there's a great program, you could make that happen. You could maybe even, there's flavors of making that happen without having to forego some kind of experiential learning that's ongoing in, in yeah. you know, kind of the commercial world. So I think it can be very situation specific, but I start with those three kind of Yeah, that's categories. smart. 
Yeah. I'm always curious about people's advice these days. And um, yeah. So, so fast forwarding through all of this, which has built up to your 20 year incredible is literally today, the day of your 20 year anniversary. We're getting there. All right. Yeah. We can pop the champagne. You get like a, yeah. a little watch or something. Yeah. <laughs> Thank no, you for your service. We actually <laughs> have uh, had a little bit of a tradition of giving folks a, uh, uh, um, on their 20th because we've had a handful of folks that we have like yeah a, a, Mad a madrona wood bowl uh oh, has okay. been kind of the has been the historical who knows i yeah. may or may not get so maybe you'll get your bowl you've earned maybe it I'll get my bowl <laughs> <laughs> what are you what are you most proud of during your time i'm sure there's a lot of moments that you feel pride uh, around um you know there's so many companies that you've had such an impact on which ultimately has impacted our community and our country and our world um what are you most proud of if you had to Pick one thing. I think that uh, I mean, there's so many uh, entrepreneurs and 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 teams that have been just. It's been an incredible treat to be a part of helping them build companies. And so there's, you know, we mentioned a few. You know, the the Sunny Guptas of the world, mm -hmm. the Sujal Sujal Patels, uh, you know, the Kabir Shahani's, and Mark Mater and Brent Fries. You know, and uh, is, you know Carlos Gestrin. I mean, there's just this this incredible list of folks and. Um, but what I think that that the thing I'm most proud of is the combination of, of our team building up Madrona yeah. um, over the last 20 years and then helping with a mindset. We, we talk about the bigger pie theory where we're really looking to build a bigger pie of innovation in, in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. And so the, I, I think we've been a contributor to building that bigger pie. We haven't been focused on just getting as much of the pie for ourselves. We've been focused on doing a lot of things in the community, whether it's with the UW or with angel investor groups or all these different labs and programs. You know, back in the day, we helped get the Techstars Seattle program launched. And I could go down a long list. More recently, yeah, you guys like have had your finger on everything. Yeah, onboarding women, now Create 33. This yeah. Is, I mean, this is such a wonderful list. And so being able to build a firm build it, you know, kind of together, create a great team at the firm that then gets to work with these incredible entrepreneurs, but also helping our, our ecosystem. That's pretty awesome. It's pretty yeah. fun. Yeah. What's your, your um, methodology that you use as far as looking at potential investments? Are you looking at ideas, people, combination, um, experience? Like, what do you use as your absolute must be in the deal? or absolutely yeah. must not be in the deal? And how did your experience in um, investment banking and also McKinsey um, shape your ability to look through a certain lens? Well, I'll, I'll give you the, it seems a little overly simplified on the, the answer to the first question, and then I'll, I'll, I'll mention the other, the other piece. Um, I would say on the first question, I look at this triangle of, you know, first of all, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? And why are you passionate about solving that problem as a founding team? You know, and do you have a really clear understanding, a customer-centric understanding of that problem? By the way, the usual gotcha there is there's a lot of people that come in talking about a technology that they love. That's usually a, not a good thing. You know, I want to hear about the problem they're trying to solve, why they're passionate to solve it. Then let's hear, let's have an understanding of the why and the why now. In other words, what are the market forces at work that are changing? You know, you know, and I think that's going to be one of the interesting things in COVID-19 are some of the things that we might have been technologically possible, but the market and society wasn't ready for them, or maybe yeah. not going to be available. So what are the market forces? Sometimes it's things like 
smartphones became a big thing 10 years ago and right. certain stuff you couldn't just do before like uber you know you know or, or right. even a rover right you know in our portfolio but you know so the second thing is is what's the market context and an understanding and then the third is can you actually build the differentiated solution you know and so is the core of the team able with their own skills and understanding of how do, am i going to solve that problem i'm passionate about solving technologically speaking and i can re recruit and attract other people like i'm as a founder, got this passion and this skill set and this, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a Pied Piper for bringing other folks onto the team because no founding team can ever do it themselves. And is that all coherent? Like it actually is a triangle that fits and it fits together. And of course, in the center of the triangle is the founding team. So that's the thing I'm kind of looking for. Now, ironically, I would say that neither investment banking or consulting were most helpful on that, but actually my operating experience um at genuine right. parts where i'm I was sure a bunch of businesses and innovating and meeting you know startups that were online startups that we could be the back-end partners to that's how i met madrona you know yeah. they had a they had oh, okay. a online office products business we had a billion dollar office products wholesaler i was kind of the intermediary for all these innovative new business models and partnerships and met you know paul goodrich through that yeah so, kind of pretty nutty I love hearing those backstories of how this all came to be in that sliding doors type of way. Like if I hadn't done that, then I never would have met and we never would have ended up in Seattle. And here we are, you know, yeah, yes. it's really cool. And so how is this accelerator fund that you guys started changing your world personally and your overall strategy? It's just like an, an added on thing, right? It's not going to change kind of the um, timing around yeah. when you invest. The theory around the acceleration fund is to maybe take a half a step back. You yeah. know, our core strategy is to be there from very early on. We talk about being there from day one for the long run. And what that part of what that means is that once we make an initial investment out of our existing fund, we reserve enough money to support you like it was with Smartsheet or after or others 10 plus years before you go public someday. Um, and so those are the day one for long run style investments. Of course, we're there at the Series B and the Series C and the IPO and the M&A transaction. And one of the things we started seeing about five, six years ago is that partly because we built up an experience set in that area and partly because Seattle had become more prominent, especially in areas like cloud and applied machine learning, that some of our friends in the venture community and some entrepreneurs were coming and saying, maybe you guys would like to be co-investors with us in this mm. particular investment. We initially started doing that in deals like Snowflake and Accolade out of the main fund. Oh, I didn't know you were in Snowflake. Good job. <laughs> yeah. So we, so we were in them pretty early on. Okay. Uh, and we're like, okay, that was a Series C, I think. And, you know, some investments like that, you know, we showed that we could add some unique value through our understanding of cloud, our relationships with Amazon and Microsoft and principle. So maybe we should create a dedicated fund to make new investments, first time Madrona investments at a series B or series C stage. Mm -hmm. By the way, it can be somebody now, it can be more likely to be somebody that's maybe not based in the Pacific Northwest, you know, right. like a snowflake wasn't, even though Bob Moogley at the time was CEO was, was living in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but it can also be somebody who's um, based in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, investment that we, Mis mistakenly didn't invest in Orlando. We've made those mistakes, you know, think about- Yeah, I was great curious companies. about the ones that are the ones that got oh, away. Auth0, Outreach. Oh, you know, oh Outreach great, you didn't, okay. Yeah, great companies, you know, yeah. we, we, we messed up on those, you know. Remitly, another fantastic example. I mean, we're the smallest of small investors there because of tech stars, but 
and, and same as outreach. But I mean, there we were. We saw those companies when they were formative through TechStars, and yeah. we didn't get we didn't get it right. Yeah, Chris was on the podcast. We had a good talk. We both we both went to Lakeside here, and had, like he's a little <laughs> older than I am, but we had a little um, talk, and it feel like he's got a, a great sense. His TechStars classes have just yeah. been amazing. Uh, he's a great he's a great part of the ecosystem. We're, we're he working really on stuff is. He really right is. Now. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so what's a typical day for you, like pre-COVID and how do you think that's going to change in your life post-COVID? Um, what does an investor do all day and um, what percentage of your time is spent on your board work? I, I have a lot of questions around it. We'll do one at a yeah. time. If I would say 60% of time on board work, 25% of time looking at you know specific new companies and then kind of another 15%, which is you know, Madrona related uh, in one form or another, you mm. know, particularly on Mondays, we do a lot of Madrona team things, you know, cause that's our Monday meeting. We have a lot of yeah. activities throughout the day, um, but also, you know, working on investment themes that we're developing, which is a little bit, you know, related to, of course, the second bucket, which is actually looking at new investments. Um, but the most time intensive stuff is really helping build the companies. Um, I, I get a lot of energy out of that. It's a lot of fun working with our teams, even if they're going through a challenging time or a hard decision. Um, but between the formal board meetings, the informal one-on-ones, you know, the working sessions on different categories, that's, that's a big, big yeah. chunk of it. You're on a ton um, of boards. I mean, I knew a few because we talked before, we've got yeah. some overlap and personal friends who you're on their board, but like, you're on a lot of boards. How do you, and, and then you have all this time for, it sounds like being an incredible family man and mm. your involvement with the policy work and the hutch. Like, I, I'm like, are you having like a 40 hour day that we're unaware of? <laughs> <laughs> your time management must be insane, but what's your take on kind of what makes a good board member and what an, what a, um, what an entrepreneur should look for when making a decision about an investor and, and potential board member? Uh, I, I think that's a great question, uh, and especially when you can add the investor and board member. I think you're looking for somebody who is putting the company first. They're really, you know, the company and by that extension, the founders and the entrepreneurs, you know, kind of that really you have their back, that you're trying to do everything the best you can to help that those people and their company succeed. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a level of that objectivity. Now, what's in, sometimes maybe missed in the venture world is that doesn't necessarily mean I'm like the entrepreneur's best friend, although I think it's really important and it's really fun to have these great, deep, genuine friendships. Yeah. But it's part of our job to ask the objective, tough questions. Of course, to push them. Yeah. And, and you've got to do that totally with respect and with thought and hopefully with some really good experience tested inputs and ideas. Mm -hmm. But you're also there to ask, you know, the questions and sometimes make suggestions um, and recognize that, you know, I'm my hypothesis on something is is wrong a lot of the time. Right. You know, hopefully it's right often enough that you can be a valuable sounding board and advisor and coach, you know, to to a team. Um, and then I think the other piece of it is that knowing what your relative strengths are versus other board members, including, you know, the CEO and the founder you know, they're not the same person, but, but may also both be on the board. And so it's kind of over time crafting a composite set of skills around the board. I mean, there are certain things like uh, strategic transactions and M&A type stuff that going all the way back to my banking days and whatnot is an area I can be probably more helpful on. I'm probably a little bit better on strategic market and market positioning. 
you know, so somebody else who's stronger on sort of the depths of engineering and product management would be a good complement. Now, sometimes that's a founder, sometimes that's not. So I think you're looking for, you know, a person who's really got the company and the, and the founders back. Yeah. Two, that you're objective in a respectful way. And three, that you kind of know your strengths and weaknesses and can complement with others around the table. Yeah, I love all that. And I also think that your, um, your personal take on kind of the importance of relationships throughout mm -hmm. and what yeah. that can do for an entrepreneur as far as connections and um, recruiting and all of it, you know, mm -hmm. how, to, oh, how, yeah. to, how to make sure that you're adding value as far as kind of um, making introductions and stuff, I think is also mm -hmm. important. Um, okay, so moving to coronavirus, we've like, here we are like deep in. Yeah. I really want to dig deep on this because I know that you are passionate about social good. You're passionate mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. policy. Um, you're passionate about your work at the Hutch. So I'm sure there's some sort of intersection because you're, you're on the front lines, actively involved in COVID-19 um, mm -hmm. response, right? Yeah. And so um, how do you align all of this? together and make sure that you're um, aware of kind of the, um, the innovation that's happening in biotech and also kind of um, the, the implications with that as far as. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been very, um, I think, inspiring around our community. I think our community has done a great job together in this time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so if I, and I do think there's some additive nature of this is where kind of the, how do you have that many hours in your day? I think a little bit of these things create a bit of a virtuous cycle. So when I think about that, just to take, I'll give you three examples, right? Yeah. You know, one example it was all in Seattle. Yeah. And what an incredible story. And, yeah. you know, it was really Raj Singh and yeah. Kabir. We had, we had them on the podcast, yeah. actually. We did you know, their story. That yeah. was awesome. And so, you know, we were able to be a little bit of a part of that and connect some dots. And because of our history with Amazon, we were just, I think, For especially sure. helpful bringing some of the Amazon team in to be a part of the early push around it. Um, so that was one of those things early on. You know, there was a neat fortune story that kind of highlighted some of the things that happened at the Hutch and, and Tom Lynch, our new, you know, president of the Hutch, which, you know, as the board chair, I'd been pretty involved with recruiting him. And then in the first month on the job, he gets handed this massive challenge. Yeah. And so, you know, seeing what was happening at the Hutch, I think inspired me and us at Madrona to say, hey, we got to be beyond this originally on, okay, how are people going to no longer be working in the office? What are the steps we need to take there? And now, of course, with the great work that Katie and Shannon and Ashani and a bunch of our team have done to help people begin to think about and have the templates on the, you know, the back to work toolkit to be able to get kind of learn their way into going back to the office. Um, you know, we really, it really is the back to office toolkit because people have been working plenty hard. Yeah, so for that's sure. Another example. But the other one I'll mention is, you know, there is this incredible intersection of the biological sciences in the kind of computer and data sciences. And we're seeing that in the COVID-19 time. And in some ways, like some of the work with COVID safe that's happening between Microsoft and UW, and then also the collaborations of Google and Apple. And, and actually now, Shwetak Patel in the computer science department and Jason Dury, who runs the Brotman Beatty Institute over more on the biological sciences side, they were both doing a bunch of stuff and they hadn't quite connected on this. And, you know, just a few weeks ago, I was like, Hey, you know, you guys probably connect. And, that's you know, so that's, awesome. That doesn't take but a minute of my time, but knowing enough about what they were doing, that's now helped them 
be collaborating together. And yeah, together. that's that's such a gift for you to be able to connect the dots and then say, oh, mm -hmm. you two need to talk, yeah. which you're right. It takes you a minute. But the fact that you're a doing it and, and also just mm -hmm. that your brain is going in that way. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's leaving such a legacy behind of just like, oh, that took me two seconds to just say these two need to know one another. Yeah. And, and it's fun, you know, every so often when like I, I had, a, I met with a guy, uh, I don't know, six months ago and he was like, you know, looking for his next thing. And he goes, Oh, by the way, three years ago, you met with my wife when she was thinking of leaving Microsoft and you made an introduction. They know she's working at that place now. And I yeah. love that. And you're like, yeah. and you don't always get to hear the feedback. Oh, it's the best. So it's part of being a recruiter yeah. too. You hear these stories yeah. all the time of, I don't know if you know this, but when you placed my friend and then she ended mm. up and then she left with the founder and they started a new company and there's all those stories. It's real. It's, it's yeah. probably the most fun part of being uh, in my industry. So there, there's some overlap in that connecting part that is, yep. I find I get a little like rush out of it. So I, I totally get that. Um, and so your, your work um, as a board member, as a chair of the board of Fred Hutch, um, I'm sure has taught you all sorts of things around health and wellness. And you were already passionate about that subject. But how is that informing how you're protecting yourself right now and mm -hmm. kind of what are you getting calls from friends of like, hey, dude, what do I do? Like everybody's responding a little bit differently to this. Um, are you learning um, through Fred Hedge kind of more information? I think we're learning a lot. I mean, we, we have some just fantastic people, you know, the, the Trevor Bedfords and Steve Pergrams and, and I could go on and on of the, the talent in and around the, the Fred Hutch and both our research areas, our forecasting areas, the clinical areas as well. UW's also got Jason Durie's and, you know, kind of Chris and the team over at the IHME. There's a, this another area where I think Seattle's going to come out of all of this even stronger because of some of the leadership that we've shown in a, a bunch sure. of different ways. But I've learned a ton from the Hutch, you know, um, understanding more about, you know, kind of how viruses work, how viruses mutate, how you can actually flatten the curve. Um, I've probably been more conservative and just being more careful and thoughtful because I, you know, I know that there's some people that are really steeped in the science that I've had good close access to. And I think that's something special. And then, yeah, try to share it, spread the word with others and, you know, including my own mom, you know, who I, I love and adore and is a breast cancer survivor, which is one of the many ways that I, as we all are touched by cancer, got me inspired to be a part of the Hutch team, you know, several years ago. So, you know, it's a, it's a learning journey. I think the challenges is, you know, a, a de novo virus, you know, even if it's in a certain class of virus, you know, there's just a lot we don't know and we're still discovering. Um, what I will say though, and I will introduce this one other thought here. I think that this concept of open by default is going to be an interesting one to pursue, which is there's so many artificial constraints back to freedom and boundaries. We realize there's a lot of constraints around how people open up their science, open up the data they have, share with others and learn in more real-time collaborative ways. A lot of those barriers have been broken down to find sustainable preventions and cures and tests for COVID-19. Yeah. And so do we need to go back to all those constraints? Sure. Some of those constraints and boundaries are healthy constraints because otherwise we'd have testing in humans on things that have toxicity issues that are problematic. Um, so we've got to be careful about that. But on the other hand, I think we learn through these kinds of processes, there's a bunch of artificial constraints and we need to approach it in different and better ways. Mm -hmm. There's also some um, incredible collaboration happening in the biotech community 
um, where they're just like, hey, let's all bets are off. We're no longer kind Mm -hmm. of competitors. We're going to collaborate and we're going to connect and go towards this common goal. And I've loved watching that and the success of that. Um, Are there lessons that you think that you'll take away um, from this time, both professionally and personally, of kind of how you um, have improved and habits that you hope to continue on with? Yeah, I think that uh, that's a, it's a great question. I think one of them is this, you know, area of, you know, again, respectfully, because there's usually good reasons that boundaries build up, but, you know, kind of how do you respectfully challenge the boundaries and how can you inspire people to move from inertia or status quo into innovation faster? You know, Satya Nadella said in their earnings call that there's been two years of innovation adoption in two months. Yeah. Or why did we have to have a crisis for that a little bit? And so I think that that's, that's one area. The other area, and this probably sounds like a truism, is that in a crisis, it is so important to over-communicate. And I think with the, one of the unlocks has been we've realized you know, that video, even if you have to be remote, is a powerful way to communicate. And lots of ways that people are doing increased frequency you know, we went from a once a quarter all hands meeting to an every other week all hands meeting from the drone during this time. You know, we increased the number of limited partner. We have a limited partner board, basically advisory committee, and we increased the frequency of our communications with them and then went to, you know, Zoom chats versus just a phone call. Mm-hmm. So I think having more robust and frequent communications is so powerful yeah. in times of uncertainty. And, and it really makes a difference in and how people together can navigate through it. And that's yeah. been really brought home to me in, in this unusual type of crisis where we all have to be apart and yet we all need to stick together. Yeah, I love those ideas around business and, and just also transparency and through yeah. the business leadership mm-hmm. and just as much information as people can share to, to p- keep people calm and keep the trust mm-hmm. levels high. Because when you're not yeah. seeing and touching and feeling humans, it can be a little bit like, wait, where do things stand? So yeah, you're right. Yeah. The over-communication I think is most... Uh, crucial right now. And what about at home? Are there things that you're like, oh, like I, I've had so many people, including us, like, it's sad that it created um, this. And I've always wanted to be much more of a kind of family dinner type of family. Yeah. Um, but we're always kind of two entrepreneurs going in two different directions, mm-hmm. three kids, all different ages. And now we're like three meals all together. Yep. And it's, I'm like, how do we hold on to that? You know, when yeah. this ends and just, you know, nights around the puzzle around, sitting outside by the fire and just talking. Um, yeah, we, we, we've been pretty good. I would never say great, but pretty good at trying to emphasize the, you know, the dinner time. Uh, but of course, you know, I've got four dinners or work dinners or events. And, you know, and so I think it's been a real blessing to be able to have that time and that constant. And then uh, even just with kids that are now, you know, out of college and, you know, out of, out of high school that are, you know, back together for a season. Oh, yeah, what a gift. That, you know, it's totally a gift. And I think one of the things that, you know, you relearn in those times is that it's just being available and being present creates the moments. Like you can't plan for the moments, but the most special moments I have found in these last couple of months have been this one, you know, whether it's late at night or out on a run or whatever, and you start to have an interesting conversation and it really leads to a deeper conversation. And I know I learn more about myself. I think we can share different things with our kids. And so I've really loved that. And then you're yeah. like thinking about is, you know, my, my daughter heading back to, to California is like, okay, well, how am I going to have more of those opportunities? Again Absolutely. In the 
Absolutely. And uh, yeah, a lot of people that I know that have their kids out of um, the house and other back in, there is a certain friction of like, well, wait, I was an adult and oh. now I'm a kid again. Yes, yes. How do I do that? And why are you telling me what to do? But you don't want them to get sick. You don't want them to bring sickness back into the house. There's this freedom kind of like uh, conflict. But the net net from everyone has been like, I cannot thank like the universe enough for this time that yeah. I've had with my family that just all be You're together right. again. We never would have had that. Oh, it's so true. And, it's and I just think, it was, I think some, some of those tensions were the hardest in the first few weeks when you're kind of back to like, okay, what yeah. are the new norms of our family with an case sure. young adults and all? And, you know, was, and I think there was also a lot more stress in those first set of weeks. Oh like yeah. And nobody knew and economic yeah. stress. And yeah. yeah. Once so, we were able to let go and go, I guess this is like what we're doing. We're yeah. chilling in the house yes. yeah. in, our, in our, you know, party on the top and pajamas on the yeah. bottom. Yeah. Um, what kind of business opportunities are you seeing that are going to come out of this virus? I'm sure you're getting asked that yeah. also constantly, but I am curious. No, I think that um, uh, there is a whole set of things about the future of work, and you've probably heard enough about that. Yeah. We have a bunch of thinking and idea ideation going on. Yeah. Let me give, you give two examples. One, I think, is separately, I think digital first workflows. So let's take all these enterprise software companies that are selling their software. And it's been a mix of on-premise, you know, go visit people in person and digital stuff. I think the entire funnel, you're going to have to imagine it as if it's all digital, digital first. And then over time, as we're able to, you might pepper in some in-person meetings, but you'll have a whole system where I can close a $100,000 deal and never show up, Yeah. you know, in person. And that, you know, again, I think that's going to be a big change. And it's going to be for not just, you know, something like the selling motion, but the actual business processes themselves will yeah. become increasingly all digital and there'll be human intervention more by exception, whether that's cash management, whether that's marketing, whether that's customer success. Uh, and so I think we're going to get more awareness and adoption of that. Another corollary is this leveraging of video for whether it's online learning, like my son's experiencing in his, in his high school, you know, stuff at SAS, or let's take telehealth. You know, there are a bunch of situations where a telehealth experience is not nearly as good as an in-person consult, but there are a lot where it's not only equally good, but actually better. Yeah. Like if you're a chemo patient, mid-chemo, immunocompromised, you really don't want to be coming into, a, a, you know, an office where there's a, potentially a lot of germs and viruses and yeah. things like that going around. Plus, you might want to have your daughter who lives 3,000 miles away on the call, brother or somebody on the video call, yeah. kind of seeing the experience and the interaction with you and yes. your doctor and the consult. And so people have learned those things are even better. Now there's constraints like how Medicare and Medicaid reimburses, but as we've learned through it out of necessity, I think there's, you're just never going to go back. The genie's out of the bottle on the, for certain circumstances, the you know, kind of uh, superiority of that kind of an experience. And so I think we're yeah. going to see more kinds of technology-driven adoption more rapidly. And all of these things, I mean, there's a ripple effect to all of it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, sure. the telehealth thing has a ripple effect. Commercial real estate is going to be like mm -hmm. on its side. Yes. Who knows what's going to come out of that industry. I'm super curious what your take is on kind of what to expect out of the economy in the next six months. And just even the stuff with China yeah. and Trump. And I mean, it's, it's, mm. it's a crazy <laughs> moment so to get politics, there's but like, lot. it's, a, there's, it's a, there's a lot to, to tackle here. Um, I think that this is going to be the 
I'm pretty hopeful, but I think pretty confident that this second quarter will be the toughest quarter economically on a lot of different fronts from an employment perspective, from a GDP perspective, from a just companies being able to sell. So kind of from a revenue top line perspective, I do think we're going to start to see layering back of, of demand, uh, both consumer and business demand in the third quarter. And what the big uncertainty still is like, what's the second wave going to look and feel mm. like, you know, is it going to be more like the Hong Kong experience, which has been quite mild from an, you know, from a second wave of coronavirus or Singapore where they had to go back into shutdown mode, you know, and we'll learn more here from some of these European countries that are moving a little more aggressively. We're going to learn across the States, you know, in terms of their aggressiveness, but I think an aggregate will start to see now, I don't think it's a V-shaped bounce back quite the way the stock market has appeared to bounce back. In fact, I think we're going to have a tough Q2 from a stock market. Sure. Like I think, you know, but but I do think it's more positive than not. I'm I'm on the slightly more positive side of you know rebuilding, you know, kind of the economic momentum. Having said that, I think there will need to be so a real emphasis on, you know, skills preparedness and job retraining. Cause I think some of the jobs that were there before will not come back in numbers and people will need to be prepared to have a more somewhat of a different more di again digital first kind of skill set mm -hmm. um you know for, for for some of those future jobs but i wouldn't say i've got great formed thoughts on that but even if you yeah i would like be starbucks, curious what what jobs yeah. yeah you just read that this morning starbucks is um there's going to be an implication on the seattle community from that yeah. too like seattle's yeah. they're asking for their lease like uh yeah. Yeah, some forgiveness there. Um, and what about the implications on um, colleges and universities going remote uh, and people pulling out and deferring and then all of the endowments from that and those going into yeah. the financial world? Like, well, I how do you think that's going to impact? I need to jump oh, on a call with my college in a minute oh, on this topic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because I think that it's, um, you're right. I think that there's, first of all, they got to figure out, you know, can students return to campus you know is there a way to do that with minimized risk and you got all these second and third order implications like well what about students that were otherwise going to be going on abroad programs that can't probably you're probably not going to allow that in the fall so then you've got more students on campus from that but on the other hand you might have some international students that can't get here to be on campus yeah and then you might have some students that have health issues that need to do their work remotely out of abundance of caution while we still don't have a vaccine and we don't have proven treatment. So boy, I, I think that the educators have a hard hand. Oh um, yeah. Having said that, I think there are gonna be a number of schools that do have a you know on-campus, in-class you know, option for the fall. And I think we will be ready to do that. I think it will generally work out. Um, mm. And I think that'll also apply to you know, the, um, I think in most places, that's also going to apply to the, uh, to the, to the K through 12 students as well. Yeah. It's a fascinating topic. I could literally talk to you all day and I know that you have <laughs> this other, this other call. I said to you in the beginning, I'm like, we're just going to do a quick and dirty, just little COVID, <laughs> but I've been wanting to interview you for a long time and I could continue on, but I'm going to let you go to your, to your call with, uh, I'm guessing Dartmouth. Um, yes. My final question that I ask everyone on the podcast, and I think I know the answer because you're you seem pretty clear. But what fuels you? What's your ultimate fuel? Uh, I think it's impact. I think it's making yeah. a positive difference in the world and making positive difference in people's lives, and um, that really fuels me. And, and kind of having having the the you know kind of the faith and confidence that you can make a positive di difference. You know, you know, for the people that are closest to you. You know, my family, of course. 
but then for others and particularly for these amazing entrepreneurs we get to work with. Well, you're doing it and our community and our country and our world is lucky to have you. And I'm super uh, grateful that you took the time to be on the podcast. Stay safe and um, and we'll talk to you soon, hopefully in an in a in-person way. We can give a virtual hug for now. Sounds good. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, I really yeah. loved it. Yeah, super fun. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.